welcome to the Epic Angels podcast. Every episode, we put the spotlight on one of our portfolio startups. My name is Mikey. And my name is Hester. After the conversation with the founder, Mikey and I will have a conversation together with one of our Epic Angels to reflect on this investment. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Boost Capital, the pioneer of quick and easy digital loans headquartered in Singapore with a pilot market in Cambodia. With Boost, clients of financial institutions can apply for loans in five to 10 minutes through their phones without downloading an app. Boost helps the underbank get access to money and brings financial institutions to success with new channels, rich data, and lower operating expenses. Boost has won various prestigious awards from the United Nations and MasterCard. I definitely want to hear more. On the show today, we have co-founders Lucinda Revel and Gordon Peters. Lucinda and Gordon, welcome. Before we dive into Boost Capital, I want to hear who are you, how did you meet, and what inspired you to build Boost Capital? I'm Lucinda. Gordon and I have known each other so long we can't actually remember how we met. So it's going on something like 16 years. We had both been working in Southeast Asia. We've been living there for ages. For me, I was spending that time growing companies in all different kinds of sectors like solar, water treatment, agriculture, education. So I know how to scale companies in emerging markets. And then Gordon was coming out of the microfinance world where he had been previously doing finance M&A and strategy consulting. So actually, it's Gordon who originally had that light bulb moment that financial institutions in emerging markets are really kind of stuck in this brick and mortar habit while their customers want digital services. And so we came up with this idea where we wanted to test the product market fit of if there was demand for digital loan and savings onboarding. And we threw together a chatbot just actually to try and do sort of like human-centered design of it. And we wanted to work out the quirks of the customer experience in chat. And then we thought, okay, we'll figure that out and we'll build an app. We threw a couple of Facebook ads behind it. And in a weekend, we had 500 loan applicants. Fortunately, we had a banking partner that was like, we'll take those applicants. And thus, Boost was born. We actually never even bothered to go into app because chat was so successful. And we realized it had a bunch of advantages over app in terms of basically allowing you to access a new customer base and a less tech sophisticated customer base, one that doesn't necessarily have the ability to know how to do an app download, but definitely knows how to use Telegram, knows you know, WhatsApp Messenger. So that's how we started out Boost in the first place. So Lucinda did a great job introducing me and, and Boost to previous. I mean, Lucinda and I kind of joked that we almost share one brain and that Lucinda is in charge of launching new partner banking systems, leading user experience. I focus on tech management, um, some partners as well as in investors. And, and together we've been growing Boost over the last couple of years. Excited to be with you today. Personally, I'd just like to say I'm thankful that Gordon is a very empathetic, outgoing leader. It really allows me to follow my more natural Spock-like impulses that for me to just expect optimal performance from our team members without yep. tending to human emotions. Yep, yep. Uh, so thank you there for that, Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> yep. No, and it definitely came across very well during the conversations that we had over the past weeks that you're, you're really this duo at that functions as one. So that's, uh, that's beautiful to see. Now let's zoom in on your company, Boost Capital. So what's really the problem that you're solving and for who? Yeah. So the problem is that traditional financial institutions are very much stuck in this brick and mortar operation. Their clients want to use digital, like they're already using digital payments and they want to have digital banking, digital savings, digital loans. So we created this 
system, which we think is the best SaaS onboarding technology for microfinance and banks in Southeast Asia. In terms of like why us, we already had close friends who were applying for and taking loans and they were experiencing this sort of like three to five days of active participation, multiple trips to the bank. And we knew that for working people, that's really time consuming, especially people who might like women who might have childcare responsibilities at home. It's just not sustainable. So we wanted to build this solution for the end customer, but then also for financial institutions, the, the institutions that want a digital channel to acquire new customers and then to retain existing customers against a new digital landscape and increasing neobank competition. Just to confirm, you are not a financial institution yourself, right? You are that digital layer on top that allows the customers of these banks to apply in a super fast way, right? Exactly. Okay. And that also means you're not taking any credit risk, right? That all risk stays with the bank, stays with the financial institute. Yeah. And the reason that we wanted to do that is because when you try and persuade a bank to change their credit underwriting, it becomes this multi-month process in which it has to go to the risk committee and in the credit committee and the product committee, and it takes forever. So we said, don't try and do that. Just take the underwriting and the loan products and the saving products that they already have, move them digital. And then because it's digital, we have, we give them so much more data, not just about the people that they're choosing to lend to, but also the people that they're declining and then allowing them to access that data pool to make data-driven decisions about how to change their underwriting going forward, how to become more inclusive, how to access more customers. So it becomes this back and forth relationship with us and the bank of data-driven decisions and advisory that basically allows them to move going forward rather than just trying to make the, the hard stop, like change your underwriting at the beginning. And so the whole algorithm, the decision about whether or not this customer gets a loan, that remains with the financial institute. That's not part of you. You just enable that through your system that they can apply the algorithm basically that they want to apply for the customers to get a loan, yes or no. Yeah, we ingest their loan products and their credit underwriting into our system. The reason we do that is then there's not a huge delay of going back and forth between our system and the bank system. It also means that the bank doesn't have to build anything because that's another holdup. When you ask like the IT department of the bank to do a lot of integrations between multiple systems, then it's like a two-year experience. We just say, we take your systems, we build it into us, we launch in three weeks or less. So it's much faster for the bank. They don't have to change anything. And then as we go along, when we want to do experiments, we can also very easily do like A-B tests. Like if we change this, what happens? And then we give data to the bank. The bank then gives data back to us too. So they're telling us how customers are performing so that the system can constantly learn. I'm glad we had on this so early in the conversation too, because essentially this is some of our secret sauce is when we start working with banking partners, we're saying no new engineering time, no new credit risk time. And because of that, we can launch in two to three weeks. And that is something that we think is special and unique about our technology and our business. And then same mantra for customers. We're meeting customers where they are right now. Customers are already using chat to talk to their friends and family, already sending pictures to their friends and family and already doing video calls. And we're, we're taking advantage of those tools to offer and enable financial services for banks and, and clients across Southeast Asia. 
I noticed already in our previous conversation, right? You're really hyper-focused on getting that seamless customer experience and on both ends, both for the financial institute so that they can launch in only two to three weeks from signing a contract to actually getting their first loan on the platform, but also for that customer, that end customer, and that wants to apply for the loan in just five to 10 minutes. That's pretty unique. Yeah, I'd say it's it's not easy to do what we do. We know this because there's a lot of sleepless nights. So it's not just about how do you create an application. It's how do you do it joyfully for the end customer so that they actually are really getting the information back that they need, that they're feeling like they have the relationships that they want with the financial institution to create that customer joy. And then also, how do you nudge people along. People are busy. Maybe they started an application then on their lunch break, then they had to go back to work and they forgot about it. So you have to have nudges and gamification to sort of move people along and make sure that you're finding that right balance between getting the most people out of your funnel versus customer joy. So I think all of that is unique mentality that we have that is very difficult for financial institutions to replicate. They're not used to being customer focused. They're used to saying, Customers come to us, we get to make decisions, and the world is changing. You have to compete for customers. You have to make the customer's experience as joyful as possible. Yeah, and we know banks are typically slow, definitely if it gets to systems and IT. How do you connect with the core banking system that they have? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. Yeah, our system is built to have just one single interface between Boost Platform and our partner's core banking system. And it's after we've brought a customer straight through from customer learning about a financial service product all the way to underwriting, KYC, credit checking. And then we, at the very end of the process, have followed all of the rules for a financial institution partner to bring on a new customer for a loan product or a savings product or or other. Um, And then we upload it into their core banking system. And so at at that point, the bank sees it in their system, then says approve or rejects the loan and then then lets lets us know why our algorithms changed depending on, on how that goes. Um, but we've got a pretty tight relationship with our banking partners so that, our, you know, over 95% of the loans that we're sending them are accepted because they're already pre-qualified based on the loan partner, all their algorithms. So yeah, we have one single point of interface where we upload it to their core banking. They reply back and tell us that the customer is good to, to go. I think it's a pretty unique thing to have just one point of interface between us and our partners. And because of that, we're able to move pretty fast and then grow with our partners over time. Yeah, and what I understood as well, you also have a partnership, one of the core banking systems to really make sure that that integration goes seamless. We chose for our own system to use a Missoni core banking because they're really API forward, they're cloud-based, they're super easy to interface with. And so we developed a partnership with them in which they're promoting us to their customers and we're promoting them to our customers. And for that, it means that we can go beyond just our typical service and I'll enable a couple of other things like customers can check their savings balances through chat because we're deeply integrated into the Missoni system. Customer can ask, what's my next loan repayment and get the answer through chat. So there's a couple sort of extra add-ons for anybody who uses Missoni. Yeah, and we're integrated now with three core banking providers already. So Terminos, Missoni, and Nolito, and, and we'll probably add a few more over the next year. So, I mean, I think that, that we're able to work with a number of, of operators, but have a deeper relationship with one that's very API forward and tech enabled. Yeah, that makes sense. And also speaking about the landscape, because right now in the start of your company, the focus is on microfinance. And I know that the pilot market you picked is Cambodia. 
I know you're focusing on the broader Southeast Asia with that pilot market there. You both have strong backgrounds in microfinance. You've held senior positions in firms within the financial industry, but our investors may not know as much about microfinance and about Cambodia as much as you do. So I'd love to hear more about the market and the opportunities. What is the opportunity that we're having here? So when we started the business, we thought that we were going to be mostly focused on microfinance. And that's where we were for about a year. And then as we continued to grow, the opportunity set just widened out. So microfinance is essentially rural banking. It's a new specialized word for that, but it's rural <laughs> banking out of brick and mortar branches. So we have some partners that are 200 branches across some geographies. I think generally what we see, banks have started coming in and competing away for customers in major markets. And they're offering digital ways to serve client need for financial services. And your traditional banks have struggled to enable technology to meet customers where they are from a tech perspective. And so that's what we're building. We're building a neobank stack for traditional institutions to get to customers and enable those digital tools. When we started, we were working with a couple of microfinance institutions. So rural banks, we've expanded and work with a regional bank, a regional digital wallet. It has operations across, I think, six or eight countries in Southeast Asia, and then a couple of single market banks. So we're really expanding, expecting partnerships in the Philippines and a couple other countries in, in Southeast Asia pretty shortly. But we just think there's a massive opportunity of, as digital comes into the market pretty heavily with some tailwinds of COVID and other tailwinds, you know, digital taking off with uh, smartphone penetration. We think there's this massive opportunity to, to help meet customers where they are and serve their needs digitally with smartphones uh, becoming more and more prevalent. We think that there's a lot of space to expand across product lines as well. So we started with loans, then we added financial education as a second product line. Now we're doing savings as a third. And then we've had a lot of inbound interest from leasing and microinsurance. So a lot of the backend tech stack and the sort of customer servicing that we've already built applies very nicely into leasing and insurance as well. And so we see that as another expansion market for us. Yeah, I can definitely see that once that interaction works with the bank, it can be applied to many different products, even though the microfinancing, the lending basically has been the starting point. And that microfinancing, that, that microloans has been a huge enabler for all the countries in Southeast Asia, right? It's, it's yep. offering lower interest rates, providing access to formal lending systems instead of loan sharks that were there in the past. And that, that allows the people, of course, to start businesses, fund education, pay for healthcare, and really helps a lot of these countries to develop economically. But sometimes you also see some negative words around microfinancing and around these loans where people end up not being able to pay for it. They have too much debt. They end up having to selling their homes and their lands. Risk is with the institutions, not with you. But still, I, I know that impact is an important element. So how do you plan to manage this risk, not hurt the customers and making sure that they are able to pay back their loans, even though the risk is not with you? Yeah, I think that the reason that we started Boost was very much because of the impact opportunity. We said, look, there's a great way to use tech to reduce costs for customers. One of our earliest investors was Institor Impact Funds. They've been with us the whole way and very much aligned with us in following like the smart principles, in being very impact driven. So that's been part of our DNA from the beginning. I think that when you see issues of over indebtedness in emerging markets, a lot of it is because you have a lot of banks competing for the same customers. And those are sort of bigger loans, people who have collateral, 
And then those banks are in many ways leaving behind a tranche of the population that is interested in smaller loans, that has business income that's higher OPEX to assess, that doesn't have collateral. And that's actually where our technology can step in and help to create access to finance for the customers who are actually being left behind as banks try and go bigger and bigger in their lending. And that's sort of the pool where you see over indebtedness um, being an issue. In the customer base that our technology is especially helpful for, which is lower technology users who like aren't as sophisticated enough to do app downloads, but do understand chats. We're looking for smaller size loans, often who have business income that the bank just says, ah, we're not even going to bother with a site visit to understand like your business profitability. They have no access to finance. So we're very much in a different quadrant compared to the areas that tend to have more over indebtedness. And just from a blocking and tackling point of view, I mean, we work with a number of financial institution partners that are very concerned about this. I want to make sure that the loans that they're doing are not in over-indebted positions. That's bad for their customers and it's bad for the industry. So, I mean, each fan partners does have rules on the number of outstanding debts that individual or family can have with others. They've got rules on debt servicing. Um, Lucinda mentioned the smart principles. So that the framework that was put together by a bunch of financial institutions and impact investors to say, you know, transparency, prevention of over debtedness, responsible pricing, fair procedures for complaints. Like it's a, it's something that is then accepted and promoted within a number of financial institutions to make sure there is safety in lending and follow-ups and things like that. And so we feel like there's a space where there is risk in, in any market where, where debt is growing. The, the risk is pretty well managed in each of our partners for sure that's operating in, in Southeast Asia that we're enabling digital loans for. And so we're really excited to be in that place. Yeah, and I think it helps. Since the beginning, we've been doing some pretty cutting-edge work on financial education. So taking a lot of the lessons that we've learned from digital financial service onboarding and applying that to financial education. So we do financial education through chat, through Messenger, Telegram, Instagram, TikTok, you know, and we make it really bite-sized, consumable, understandable, interactive, tailored to people. And crucially, we are doing it where we are extending benefit to people who consume financial education. So we're actually doing this whole project with the MasterCard Strive Innovation Fund right now, in which we're saying that if people choose to share their financial education consumption with our banking partners, then they get faster VIP service or they get a micro seeding on a savings account so that people are actually receiving a tangible benefit for financial education so that it becomes this sort of virtuous cycle of consume education, get better services. The bank also benefits. It's kind of like a win-win situation. Yeah, education is the key here, I feel, to make sure indeed it's going to the right people and that they know what they need to do with that. So your customers are these financial institutions that at this moment, I give them micro loans to the customers and I know that you want to expand indeed and are slowly expanding already into the other products. And the way your business model works, you charge a monthly fixed fee and you add a variable fee as a percentage of the loan that's dispersed through your platform. And your loan applicant pool has been growing rapidly, 4x over the past year, and your monthly recurring revenue has doubled. Can you give us some more insights in your traction and your future growth strategy? Yeah, absolutely. Boost has contracted a number of partners that we're working closely with. They've got over 500 million of loans outstanding across all of our partners, over 2 million clients. So great distribution for digital loans to continue to serve customers better. We've won awards from, from MasterCard Stripe Foundation, UNCDF, 
inclusive fintech 50 fintech innovation challenge we're currently closely working with partners a number of multi-market partners that would operate across a number of geographies and specifically in the philippines is, is a big area where, where we're going to be growing over the next uh, six to, to 18 months I was curious indeed about that expansion because I know that the pilot market is definitely Cambodia. You're headquartered in Singapore, but there's a lot of other Southeast Asia markets out there that I think can use this. So how do you plan to go? Because you can also like, we're going to the Philippines. That's easier said than done. What's your strategy? How are you planning to do that? So in terms of go-to-market, our strategy is that, like the positioning is that we are this awesome solution for financial institutions. Those that want a digital channel so that they can acquire new customers and then also retain existing customers against new digital competition. So in terms of like the distribution plan, we white label to each financial institution, meaning that we are not using our tech as, a, as like a marketplace where customers can shop between multiple banks. The reason for that is banks hate it. They want to build customer loyalty in their brand and Boost is helping them to do that in an increasingly digital world. You mentioned our pricing. Our pricing strategy is to try and reduce a financial institution's OPEX by 10 times at scale and to have compensation that's driven mainly by performance-based fees that align between Boost and our financial institution client. In terms of how geographically expand, so there's a sort of a core commonality in financial services between what you need to understand about a customer to make a lending decision. You need to understand their ability to repay, and then you have different markers for probability to repay. So in every geographical market we go to, we can keep that core measurement of ability to repay, which is incredibly important for avoiding over-indebtedness and other problems. And then we can sort of adjust markers for probability to repay. The other thing is to also make sure that the product is creating the greatest customer joy in every market. So in each market we go into, we have a product designer who is basically adjusting the customer experience to what is the most joyful path in that particular market. Yeah. And also I think what you mentioned is you're currently working with a couple of financial institutions that have branches across Southeast Asia. How can you grow with them? Can you tell a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we're currently working with partners that are in the Philippines and are across Southeast Asia, the Mekong region. And, and we think that there's great opportunities to grow with our current partners. So, so we'll, we usually have seen so far launching in one market, testing it out, and then seeing some large success of, of customer applicants and digital products going through those and then desire to launch in other markets. And so we, we sort of put that as, as part of our strategy mid last year where we said, okay, this is a great way for us to grow because you essentially move pretty fast with partners that are very happy with you in a pilot context and then growing from there. So we're sort of been responding to that demand from our partners saying, can you launch in this new market, please? We've got a team that would be ready to implement. Um, and so that's why we think, um, you know, the, the, the launch, uh, launch locations that will go next will be demand driven based on those. And so far, so good. You're currently raising $1 million in safe notes uh, with a price round of $2 million expected later this year. You're actually already oversubscribed for the current round, but luckily for us, you left a small allocation for Epic Angels. And other investors in Boost are in Citor Fund, SOSV, Hustle Funds, Local VC, and a couple of others. I actually spoke with a few of those investors and they were all extremely positive about you. Uh, they really praised how professional you are. And from the sounds of it, you have built a real solid relationship with them. What can you tell us about your future funding strategy and what do you want to do with all this funding? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you said that about the investors. I mean, we came to the business knowing that we'd be building the business with partners um, that, that would be helping us as we go. And we, we've gotten very lucky with that. We've got investors that know the markets that we're operating in Southeast Asia, have invested previously in financial institutions in many of the markets and helped them to grow fintech and otherwise. And so we've had great advice from investors and advisors as, as we've been growing. A lot of the ones that you mentioned, and then some great angels too, like previous SVP of venture capital, Well Fargo is an, an early investor and ex-CFO of Intel is an advisor and, and give like great strategy advice. So we, we've gotten lucky with investors so far and, and continue to be excited about building the team and momentum for that. Uh, use of funds from, from this round of fundraising are going into product and technology, expanding the roadmap to different products and then geographical expansion as well. We've got great inbound requests from our credit financial institution partners for features that they want to see and things that they want to be able to enable as, as we go. And we're happy to do those and then, and then push the neobank layer for our financial institution partners. So yeah, we're luckily oversubscribed for, for this round of safe notes. Excited to have the right people on the bus that are helping to advise us to grow and that we're excited to be working with. And then as we continue to grow, we think about folks that are excited about the financial impact that we're having of building that neobank layer out and understand that there's a huge opportunity with traditional financial institutions that want to go digital but cannot, we think that there's just a massive opportunity that's there that we're, we're helping to solve. Um, so as we as we scale that business across Southeast Asia and then globally, investors that are able to help with, with us as, as, as we do that, we're excited to have them involved. We're currently speaking about like how to further expand Boost and, and how to build the company. But as an investor, you're always looking at, okay, and what's my exit going to look like? What are your thoughts on that? I know it's not going to be tomorrow. What's your take? Lucinda, do you want to take that one or you want me to? And go for it, Gordon. I'll add on if there's something you forgot. <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah, so we think there's a number of pretty neat exits as we grow our business. We think, as I said, we, the way we started the firm is we saw this, this pretty big opportunity in microfinance. And then since then, have been working with a digital wallet that we're enabling microloans in the digital wallet, uh, working with regional commercial banks, uh, working with leasing companies and microinsurers that, that are on, on board. So we think that the biggest two acquirers would be a telco that's got assets all over the region or all over the globe that wants to be able to enable loans to customers through their apps that they're running in each of the countries. As those countries grow, the telco apps become almost a super app where there's a number of services that you can do top-ups and bill pay and other things like that. But if we're in there as a micro loan option for them to enable loans to their app, we think that that's a big opportunity. And then similarly, a super app. So there are big apps that are well-known for ride hailing and delivery of things that don't have micro loans that are built in and would want that revenue per customer from a lending perspective to unlock future growth and have their customers flourish. So we think there's good opportunities that are there also, operating regional banks and, and financial institutions would also be an obvious play for, for us to get snapped up by an organization that is operating in many markets. I mean, some of the companies that we're working with now are operating in 20 to 30 markets across Asia, Africa, Latin America. And when we're pretty successful in our first couple of years of working with those institutions, there's got to be an obvious thought pattern that is, do we buy this, embed this in and grow faster or not? So I think that we'll have some interesting discussions as we're going forward and just options that are for exits that are there. And then lastly, tech companies. We definitely think there's tech enablers in the financial institution space that will continue to want to grow and, and hook into the financial institutions. We have a pretty good way of working with financial institutions in a pretty rapid, scalable way. And so we do think that that would be uniquely dangerous for some tech operators to then be 
working with us to, to help financial institutions to grow faster in the digital space. So lots of different options and places that we'd, we'd aspire to go to. I'll add one more. I've got another one. Also core banking providers. So we've already seen interest from core banking providers who want to basically have this as an add-on to their services. They're working globally. They have between 70 and 700 different financial institutions that they could deploy and basically add value to their core banking system by creating this customer onboarding add-on to what they've already got in the market. Yeah. Wow, that sounds like many opportunities indeed. It's always exciting. <laughs> what will it be? As my last question, why should anyone invest in Boost? Why is this the best investment someone can make? I think that we're one of the really the fastest growing fintechs enabling digitization of financial services focused on emerging markets. We have a working model. Clients love it. And partner banks are very happy. And so we're growing really fast. Yeah, that sounds super cool. Thanks, Lucinda and Gordon. I'm really excited about the journey ahead. Stay tuned and we will continue our podcast with Hester and one of the investors to hear more about why we are interested to invest in Boost Capital. Thank you, Micah. That was super interesting. Now let's hear from the investors what they have to say about this startup. And please remember, we are not a financial advisor. All opinions expressed by our Epic Angels are intended as educational and reflect the personal research and experiences of the team. For today's episode, we invited Nandita to join our conversation. Nandita is a financial services professional and has been part of the impact investing sector for over a decade. Prior to being associated with impact investing, she was a corporate and institutional banker in India, where she worked in risk management and client coverage. Nandita has worked extensively in the financial inclusion sector in India, and she is very passionate about investing for social good. Welcome, Nandita. Being someone who is very keen on driving financial inclusion, Boost Capital must be right up your alley. Tell us, what excites you most about Boost Capital? So one of the fundamental challenges in delivering financial services, particularly at the more middle and the bottom of the pyramid, has always been the cost of delivery. Most financial institutions, while dealing with underbanked segments, have to have a branch set up within the vicinity of where these customers can actually access these products because the customers would not be in a position to leave their source of livelihood and travel bunch of kilometers to actually assess startups. They are also, from a psychological perspective, not very comfortable dealing with traditional commercial banks in more urban setups. So for this reason, rural banking has always traditionally been very doorstep banking-led, and that increases the cost of operation significantly for the financial institution. Now, what has changed there? Clearly with technology, internet penetration, et cetera, improving drastically over the last decade or so, these customers have actually become a lot more savvy about using digital tools. And therefore, this is a win-win situation for financial institutions to be able to actually use technology seamlessly to actually onboard customers, to underwrite them, to provide a host of financial services, and in fact, really improve the extent of access that these customers could have to financial services and not just lending products. So I think that's a very exciting space and that's pretty much the space that Boost Capital is operating in today. I think that's really the white space, particularly in emerging markets. 
And it's something that will clearly lead to a lot more efficiency. Right. So, so what I hear you say is that the particular solution of boost capital is very suited to the local needs of the Southeast Asian people. I agree. We, we know that solutions, digital solutions in Southeast Asia must be mobile because that is how people operate. Also, we know that hundreds of millions of people are unbanked or underbanked in Southeast Asia with loans and other products. Do you see similar solutions in these markets that have proven to work? So, yes, very much. I think in India, in fact, the whole fintech ecosystem, which is helping financial institutions complete end-to-end processing, whether it's on the payment side, whether it's on the side of lending or whether it's on the side of savings, has certainly seen a big uptake. So we've seen a lot of that in markets like India, but definitely in Southeast Asia, I think this is something that can really pick up over the next uh, five to 10 years. Yeah, I think to that point as well, Nandita, what you're saying, eh, what Boost is doing is really providing sort of that neobank layer because there's a massive shift into neobanks where Boost is saying like, hey, traditional financial institute, you can become a neobank by adding us as a layer on your platform. And because it's that interface that what makes something really a neobank, basically. And so you, you don't need to change any of your back ends, but your front ends, your customer facing ends is that, that trendy neobank layer, which indeed is accessible for people. They don't need to travel. They don't need to spend three days to get their savings. It's just literally at their fingertips. I think that that's really strong. And then we always like to think in terms of a customer. So I'm very keen to understand how do you see that customers will adopt this? Having been used to the brick and mortar banks for decades, now suddenly there's this new solution, which fair enough has a very smooth interface. But how will you make sure that these people, which are the target group, will actually adopt this and start using it? One of the things, and this is definitely a challenge that even Burst Capital will need to work on, is the fact that cost of these products to the end customer, right? So if there is a tangible benefit that we can pass on by reducing the cost of operations or the cost of onboarding to the FI, if that benefit is passed on to the end customer, that's a clear way of establishing why the customer should use this means to actually of the financial service. And cross-sell, for instance, once you have all of this on your system, it's easy to cross-sell. It's easy to sell an insurance product or a savings product or a loan product to the same customer at pretty much no additional cost. Yeah, I think what they said in their documentation, eh, the cost per loan, for example, can be reduced from $250 to $25 for a financial institute perspective, which is massive indeed. You can do so much more with that. And I think the other part is, is it really accepted by the customers. What I love as well is a separate conversation that I had with Lucinda. She told me that in terms of the interface and the interaction of how it works, she actually said, it should be in a way that I don't like it because I am not that end customer. And she has a few people in her team that really help with that. Like, how can that interface be done in such a way that it is accepted and understood by the actual customer. And Lucinda and, and you and I, we're not the customer, right? So it's not whether we think it looks good. It's whether that real customer 
thinks it looks good. And they're super focused on that. How can we do that? How can we change that? How can we make sure it's understood? It's just easy for them to follow and that it gets accepted. Absolutely. In fact, I think one of the things we heard from founders as well is the focus on financial education. I think that's a huge, that can be a big one in terms of getting the right customer set, financial literacy, bringing them up to speed with what really are you paying for? Do they understand that very clearly? Also things like being able to deliver this in local languages, in a local setup. I think these are nuances that can really be able to attract and retain these customers. Yeah, that's absolutely critical for their success. And I think their traction already speaks to it, that they are actually succeeding in what they're trying to do. I'm very excited about Traction, as, as we heard in the main podcast. Hey, we're running a bit to the end of this chat. I would just like to understand, Nandita, what do you see can be potential exit strategies for Boost? It's exciting to talk about exit strategies at an angel investing level. I think two or three critical things, right? One is their ability to deepen FI partnerships. And they can, they can be two ways of doing this. Either you use the number of partnerships that you have, or you penetrate deeper into a single FI partnership with multiple products. And interestingly, they're doing both. So I think that's very exciting. But having said that, in terms of exits, if they are able to scale up, if they're able to really build, also build profitably, which would be critical for them. I think this is something that, of course, for the next few rounds of capital that they would need would be very interesting for larger private equity funds, sector agnostic fintech funds, et cetera. But in terms of venture exits, for me, the most promising or the most likely route seems to be being acquired by a larger bank or a financial institution itself. And we've seen this where it may not necessarily be the largest banks in some of these countries, but more emerging banks that are not necessarily the best on technology want to build more digital capabilities in terms of reducing costs. I think that segment not the large banks, not the really small banks, but the medium-sized emerging banks that are looking to, in a sense, rebrand themselves, go after different segment and really build more efficiencies in their operations. Very likes it. That's very interesting. I like that view because these banks also really understand the target group that Boost Capital is focusing on. There are many exit opportunities in need for them, so that's always good. And what I like about Lucinda and Gordon is they've been working in Southeast Asia for a very long time, over a decade, with these financial institutes. So they, they know everyone who works there. They have their partnerships, they have their network, they have their relationships. So that will really help them to, first of all, first expand, and, but also in terms of an interesting acquisition, they already have the network. So that will do really good. Plus, they're backed by these insanely well-known investors. So that's also going to help them in opening doors, opening network, which also is going to make it more interesting for an exit potential. I'm very excited for this opportunity. Thank you both very much. Very interesting to hear your views. And I'm excited to see how this continues. We hope you enjoyed looking behind the scenes. The objective of this podcast is to demystify angel investing and to share insights so you can learn more about the world of venture capital. Interested to see if you can become an angel investor yourself? Contact us via info at epicangelnetwork.com or go to our website at epicangelnetwork.com.